Amen. The Lord wants every follower, every disciple of Christ to be able to say consistently in our lives, it is well with our soul. You know, sometimes when we're asked, how are you doing? We kind of do a, a quick tabulation of things that have happened in our life and how we've responded recently to those things. And it's a little unfortunately we do that because then it's making our joy or our disposition contingent upon our circumstances. And our joy ought to be contingent upon our position in Christ always. We ought to live above our circumstances. Our circumstances should be somewhat distanced from our demeanor, you know, how we handle life in that way, so that it really doesn't matter, you know, how pleasant things are or how unpleasant things are, you know, that we ought to say, you know, I, I really am blessed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's well with my soul. It may not be well in our country, may not be well in our families, but by the grace of God, it should always be well in our souls. Amen? I think that's part of the, the heart of the message that I want to do today. Now, today's message is going to be sort of a, an introductory message, sort of an uh, over, uh, over uh, broad umbrella look at uh, the text and the point of these 12 verses. One, one thing that I would say about uh, being distinctively different as we look at these Beatitudes, is that there is a temptation to read through these series of verses, these blesseds, that list, and try to imagine, do I fit in one of these categories? Which one would describe me? And the danger in that is that's not really what I believe the list is intended to be, that we find ourselves among that list. Rather, this should be a list where all of the qualities should be true to some measure in every believer. It's not like trying to figure out your role in the ministry of the church based on your spiritual gift. The Bible very clearly tells us that the Holy Spirit gives those gifts severally as He willeth, implying that you know, not every believer has the exact same spiritual gift. One has this, another has that. Some, some have the same, but some don't. But when it comes to Christian qualities, kind of like what Peter lists out, add your faith, virtue, and the virtue, knowledge, so forth like that, that list, I think we find something similar here. Jesus never indicates that, all right, now pick out which one of these that you want to pursue, or which one of these you kind of already identify with. No, really, blessedness comes to the believer who is in, in measure saying, this, all of these I want to be true. All of these, Christ would have these to be represented in my life. What has happened to our society? Well, I think, you know, it's hard to find exact lines of demarcation where you set where something drastically happened. But I think studying history, it, you can find certain events that uh, definitely are more lines of demarcation and, and the thinking of a culture has changed. And definitely, most people would agree, World War II, because of how it really 
arrested not just our country, but really arrested the attention of the entire world, uh, really transformed thinking coming out of you know, a time of, of, of depression in the early part of the century in our country, and then coming into World War II. And you know, people that were born in that time period, they think very differently than the generations that are being born now. You know, how frugal people are, how they look at uh, industriousness, because these things were pretty much thrust upon you during that time period. And I think ever since World War II, uh, there's been a great deal of disillusionment in society. We, we look at America. If we could just talk about the country we're living in, but some of this could be said no matter what country we're talking about. And... And so there's, there's a hunger, there is an aspiring in our hearts of, you know, longing for things to be better in a culture. If we can remember far enough back, I guess it would be 12 years ago plus now when Barack Obama was uh, running and campaigning for the presidency the first time, his, his big slogan was change change. Well, you know, that one word it really depends a lot upon context, doesn't it? Uh, change can be a good thing, but change can be a dangerous thing. Now, as it was being marketed, it was definitely being presented to be a very a positive thing. But in many people's estimation, the change that came was rather disastrous, or it, it didn't bring about the kind of change that they had imagined or they were led to believe that would come about. But we know that we need a right kind of change in our world. When the first gospel preachers went out and they began to preach the gospel, even the world would complain that these preachers were turning the world upside down. That was one of the criticisms of Paul. Well, guess what? The world needed turned upside down because it needed right side up. <laughs> it, the point is, it was already in an upside position. That, that is the problem with the world. The world does need change. The world has some sizable needs, and the church was commissioned by our Lord Jesus Christ to make a difference. We need to understand that. Change is part of what we're called to promote. It's sad that even by the, the end of the first century, there were assemblies that had, as Revelation 3.1 puts it, had a name of being alive, but were dead. In other words, they, they had a reputation. They promoted the fact that we're, we're born again. We have new life in Christ. But when Christ really looked in and inspected their souls, when Christ really looked into their congregations, what he saw was not spiritual liveliness that would be a product of following the truth and resting in the Holy Spirit, but instead God saw deadness because they were very much moving towards the flesh. That, that was the condition of some of the local assemblies that soon after Jesus Christ had ascended back into heaven. And may I say that it's been a struggle like that for churches 
even ones that start off like ourselves saying, we want to be committed to the fundamentals of the faith. We want to be, we want to hold on to the foundations of the Word of God. We don't want to let those things slip. What can be more tragic than for someone to say truthfully of another Christian, you don't seem different than anyone else. And yet that does happen sometimes. You know, people will say, oh, I'm a Christian. And then a co-worker or a neighbor is thinking, wow, <laughs> that's a shock. That's not like any Christian I ever conceived of. I, you know, one person said, you want to know what a Christian ought to be like, you know, ask a lost person. Well, really, we ought to ask the Word of God. But I think what the, the saying is trying to point out is that, that lost people, you know, don't really have, you know, self-motivation. They don't have a false agenda in trying to label it. So they set a high standard and usually come pretty close to the mark of what uh, the Bible describes that a Christian ought to be. There are a lot of words that, that should and do describe a believer, but when it comes to our interaction with the world, can I say that no word is more important than the word different? We are called to not fit in. This was the message to the children of Israel in Leviticus 18 and verse 3. It says, After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. Now, when a message like that is first given, you might have heard amens in the congregation as Moses said this. But when it comes right down to the nitty-gritty, living this, nobody really likes to be different. Nobody likes to stand out like a sore thumb. Everybody has inside of them a desire to be accepted. Sometimes we refer to it as approval. And so whether we're talking about how we uh, are, are uh, assimilated into our neighborhoods, into our places of employment. It's hard to have the courage to be the person that stands out, either to be openly ridiculed because you're a Christian, you're a religious person, however they want to describe that, or to be subtly avoided. And sometimes that can be more painful for a true follower of Jesus Christ. And it's like, I mean, I'd much rather be scoffed at and called names, but the way they just kind of smile pleasantly and then just, you know, avoid me, you know, that's, that's harder to receive. It is difficult. It's easy for us to drift into conformity with those around us. It is unappealing to live in contrast because it brings alienation from some degree. There, there will be a sense that, let's take your neighborhood for example, once you become known as not just a religious person, because that's okay, especially in the South, bless God, right? But to say, no, I am a sincere follower of Jesus Christ, and then they see that you don't do certain things, and you do do certain things, and, and maybe they, the people that we're talking about that are watching you, 
They may themselves profess to be Christians. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, my daddy was deacon in my church, you know. You know, well, last I looked, I'm not sure that is one of the things that gets you in the Lamb's Book of Life. My, your daddy was a Christian. Come on in, sir, you know. No. So once we say, yeah, I'm, I'm serious, I'm passionate about my love for the Lord, there will be some distancing that happens. There's always pressure to fit in. We are applauded by the group when we do give in and conform. Hey, welcome to the club. Welcome. Yeah, you're just like one of us. That's not necessarily a compliment for someone that's trying to be conformed to the image of Christ, folks. However, it's not always hard to live differently. We see some who live very differently and seem to do so with very little care, at least in other categories of life. For instance, let's take an aspiring Olympian athlete. He spends his time very differently than most of his classmates from the time he's probably in elementary school these days. His classmates go off and enjoy parties and staying up late and doing different things, but not this young man. He's busy getting home, finishing his schoolwork so that he can engage in training and practice for his focused sport. He's then in bed early because he is up before the sun arises so that he can again train and give himself with great perseverance and tenacity to that which he has set his course for. He is giving himself and applying himself to great disciplined rigors. In another category, let's think about a young girl who's in a relationship. If she's serious about the relationship with, say, a young man, she pulls away from the girl's night out with all of her friends. Why? Because she wants to spend time with this young man. She wants to be with him. And so now she's not part of the clique like she once was. She's different, but she doesn't mind it so much, just like the Olympian athlete doesn't mind it so much. And the question is, what is true? What is similar in both of those situations? And I would say it's the word passion. The Olympian training athlete, the girl who has a meaningful relationship with the young man, are both passionate about different things, but passionate nonetheless. We don't mind terribly being different from something if we have great love for something else. And that's really the key here. The essence of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord expressing the need for His disciples to live differently. However, if we do not love the Lord, if we do not have passion for Him, then what is given to us in Matthew 5-8 through 8 is ultimately going to create a sense of resentment. Why? Because we feel restrained. We feel caged. It feels like there's something good right there, but God, you're a big meanie and you're not letting me have it. Hey, let's think about the Olympian athlete again. He may be around others that are just diving into some extra savory desserts and he is choosing to say no thanks i'll pass 
Why? Because he, he realizes what that is going to set him back and doing, and he's passionate about his training and his goal. He doesn't feel necessarily resentment because of his passion for something else. He is self-restrained because of his love for what he's doing. You know, God's people were always intended to be different. Always. Remember Balaam in the Old Testament, the prophet? Talk about someone that battled with a sense of resentment. He would be the, the poster child of that. Balaam gazed at the Israelites at one point from a high vantage point. Balak had asked him, Please curse them so that they won't be successful at ridding us from our land. Because we realize Jehovah God is blessing the Israelites. And Balaam's like, I can't say anything that God doesn't tell me to say. But you can hear the resentment in his voice. It's like, yeah, if I just did this, this king would give me all sorts of gold and robes and things like that. But God won't let me have that, you know. Not going to do it but I wish I could. See, his passion, he, he was loyal to God, some would say, to a point, but if it was passionate to God, he would be like, how can I do this great thing against my Lord? But that was not his spirit. It says in Numbers 23, 9, Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. He says that. But while this was the intended reality, what actually ends up happening to the children of God once they get into the land is spoken of in Psalm 106.35. They were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. So while Balaam never cursed the children of Israel, he did speak truth about how they're going to live in the land, but they're not supposed to be part of the land. They're going to to live there, but they're not going to be of the people. But in time, they did get mingled. They stopped being different. And that's where their problems arose from. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are you and I as different as God would have us to be? Or have we assimilated into the ways of the world like the children of Israel did? Another way of saying be different for a Christian is to say, be holy. You know, because we say, well, God's holy. What does that mean? He is very different. He's different more than anything else is different. There's nothing like unto God. He's unique. And because God is holy, we are to be holy. But perhaps not saying just the word different, Maybe that's not good enough. Because you can be different in a bad way, can't you? So when we're talking about the need to be holy, perhaps a better word might be distinctive. We're supposed to be distinctive. Which means, literally this, if we look it up into the dictionary, one definition says, serving to identify. You know, companies do this in what they call their branding. That's just a newfangled word for logos, but it encompasses the whole thing. So that when, when you look at something that touches on that company, you know, some companies, uh, if I mention certain colors to you, uh, 
uh, certain companies would come to your mind, you know, like businesses. Like if I gave Orange and then said Home Improvement, most of you are already conjuring a certain business that that is their color or uh, blue and home improvement. You would be picturing something else. And isn't that that's very intentional. They're trying to be distinctive. They're trying to do things to serve to identify. Guess what? Christians are called to be distinctive. Not by the color coding of our wardrobe but by our character, by how we conduct ourselves, by how we live. So holiness involves separation. That sounds like a dirty word, all right? We're not called to be separate in the sense that we isolate ourselves from the world, go away from it, live in isolation. And Jesus even taught about that. He said, you know, called you out of the world but not completely out of the world because then you'd have to like leave the planet was the idea but while we are here on planet earth we're not allowed we're not supposed to allow the the normal thinking the normal practices of what is called worldliness to be part of us holiness involves separation but we must be separated from something and also separated to something it's not enough just to talk about the negative side. You've got to talk about the positive side. So what is the from and the to? Well, when we are separated from the world, that means we're different. And we're supposed to be different. When we are separated to the Lord, then we're distinctive. So we're supposed to be both things. No, I'm not like the world. I'm different. But I hope you also see that I'm distinctive in that I am Christ-like. That's my goal, is to represent my Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we know that if we do right, God blesses us. God blesses obedience. God blesses faithfulness. If we do wrong, God chastens His children. We see Israel in both stages. You read, that's the blessing of reading the Old Testament, especially the historical narratives. But also the prophets, because the prophets are talking about Israel, you blew it again, and guess what? Here's, here's what's going to happen, and here's how you got there, and so forth like that. It's good for us to read that so that we learn from their mistakes, but also learn when they got things right as well. When they were being chastened, it was because they walked in the statutes of the heathens whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. God's very explicit about that in 2 Kings 17, 8. Similarly, we are told in Romans 12, 2, to be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. There's the positive side. Distinctive. Look like the Lord Jesus Christ and how we handle ourselves. So the prelude to the Sermon on the Mount, going even back before chapter 5 where we read today, we meet a man by the name of John the Baptist. If we were to compare him to a a singer, we'd call him a soloist. He wasn't part of a quartet or choir or anything like that. He's out there by himself. And so what was his song? Well, the main word in his solo was repent. That didn't mean that he just went around just monotonously saying, repent, repent, 
repent. I'm sure there might have been some times where he repetitiously said it over and over again to make the point. But his whole message revolved around that single word, that concept, repent. And what does repent mean? It means to become distinctively different. The word repent literally means to change one's thinking, which obviously also leads to a change of behavior. But the word itself means to change your mind in the right kind of way. I was thinking this way. Now, as I see God's teaching and the Spirit of God is impressing things upon my heart, I'm changing my thinking. This is the way I need to think. It is an act of the will. It is an act of submission. It isn't something we wait around for it just to happen to us. We recognize its truth and we submit to it and we do it. We do need to begin by recognizing that our reasoning as human beings is often flawed, even as Christians. We don't always logically work through choices that we make in a biblical fashion. Oh, we come up with great reasons, don't we? This is why I ought to do it. And Sometimes we even get into this silent debate with God, giving Him excuses, trying to persuade Him. That's our flesh. That's not the Spirit of God doing that. We may rationalize for our own purposes, but God's expectations are clearly outlined in His Word. If we just simply say, you know, I don't want to just squeak by and do what, God, what do I have to do? That shouldn't be our spirit, should it, folks? Our spirit should say, Lord, what will please you? What will bring a smile to your heavenly face? What will cause the Lord Jesus Christ to say, well done? So we ought to go with the spirit of, God, what can I find in your word today that will help direct me so that I can live to please you better? So here in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, we are commanded in chapter 6 and verse 8 that we are to be not therefore like unto them. Who's them? The world. We're supposed to be different. It's not a matter of just avoiding their bad practices, but it's also a matter of exceeding their good practices. This is really what shocked the people that were listening to Jesus. Because his disciples are even in this, you know, disbelief after he's done talking about it. For instance, you know, he says, you know, the world knows don't commit adultery. You ought to be loyal to your spouse. The world gets that. They don't always practice it, but they understand that, yes, that is the high standard. That is the good standard. Then Jesus comes along and says, mm, yeah, but even if you're, you're in the relationship, you've never slept around, you've never had you know, an affair or anything like that, but how about if you've had multiple thoughts? You've, you've become sort of, you know, allowed your mind, your imaginations to wander in an inappropriate way. He says, that's just as bad. And that's what I mean when I say that it's not just enough to avoid the bad practices of the world. We're called to exceed the good ones. The world cordially greets one another. But as Christians, we're to love our enemies. You know, the world doesn't do that. 
right? I don't like that person. I'm not going to smile and make happy. Now, God doesn't want us to pretend. God wants us to have a mindset that says, hey, yes, they offended you. Yes, they wronged you. Yes, they betrayed you. Don't try to imagine that it, it didn't happen. But knowing that, have a sense of sacrificial love in your mind and heart for that person. You know, the best way for us to do that is to realize we're no different than them when it comes to our relationship with God. Have we betrayed God? Have we been disloyal to God in our lives? Every time we sin, every time we transgress His expectations, we're guilty of that. And yet God is loving back to us. And God says, I want you to treat the world the same way I treat you. Unsafe people pray f after a fashion. I mean, you, you'll find people that don't have, wouldn't say the Lord Jesus Christ is their personal Savior, but they pray. In fact, it's very common for people, oh, pray for our country. And I'm thinking, that person said that? You know, they have a reputation of wickedness and so forth like that. And you're talking about praying. I'm like, I don't know what their concept of prayer is. I'm sure it's not the same concept that the Bible is talking about. They probably wouldn't even pray in the name of Jesus Christ like the Bible indicates that we should. But unsaved people pray after a fashion, but they have many vain repetitions. It just drops right here. You know, it's, it's not meaningful to the ears of God. Believers are to pray with humility as a child prays, to, converses with his father. That's what Matthew 6, 7 through 13 talks about as you go further into that. See, all this is tied together. And so we are to be different, different from the world and its extreme sinful, wicked displays, but also different from the world in its religious display. So Jesus goes up onto a mountain. wonder why. Well, there was probably audio benefits. We know that Jesus had been teaching in the area. If we were just to look back at chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, he's down in that, that area of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and so forth like that. And even goes, um, his, his, his reputation goes even across the Sea of Galilee into Syria. So Jesus, you know, people are probably flocking to him. So he needs to escape the general public so that he could have quiet time and also to focus his teaching on those that are his true disciples. Now notice, he did not do this level of teaching where it was easily accessed. He went and the audience had to follow him. The audience of this teaching had to demonstrate a measure of commitment in order to even be exposed to what he was saying, even to hear what he was saying. Now, it's true. God wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's, you know, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. But as we think about people that make outward, external-only overtures and statements about, oh, yeah, I'm a follower of God. Often the Lord establishes certain things to see, are they genuine? Is this really something in their heart? 
Some have drawn parallels to what's going on here in this chapter to Moses going up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. You know, why do that? God could have easily just given him the law, you know, down at the ground. You know, why go all the way up there? Even Matthew's gospel seems to be divided into five sections that, that are set off by when Jesus had finished. He, he says certain things. And so there's a teaching of Christ where clearly he is focused on those that whom God the Father is working in their hearts. So when he sat down, he was assuming the posture of a rabbi, or what we would say today, a legislator. Because a rabbi was someone who was a doctor of the law. Not the, just the civil law, but all the law. And for them, that's all it was. It was just the law, the Torah. And so it involved re religious life, ceremonial life, personal life, civil law. It was all one encompassing thing. A rabbi knew the Bible, basically. His disciples come to him, they listen to his teaching. The Bible says he opened his mouth. An expression that is indicating the solemnity, the seriousness of his, his utterances. It wasn't just, I'm getting ready to talk here. This was, okay, let's hush. Let's hear what he has to say. You know, we will concern ourselves as we continue through this little series in Matthew 5 with the eight marks of Christian character that are described here. The person who exhibits these traits is the person who is truly blessed. God does not bless us because we exhibit the traits, but importantly, we are blessed simply because we do possess the traits. Now, God's the one that wells these traits up inside of us. It's submitting to Him. It's yieldedness to Him. It's the work of the Spirit of God, the Word of God inside of us. It's not just a matter of us trying harder. But we need to realize that as these things do represent our life, that we will have a blessed, a, a true, meaningful happiness in life here on planet Earth. You know, there's something to the Christian life that says, you know, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Good theology. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to enjoy the abundant life in Jesus Christ right here and now. It's not that we're supposed to walk, well, it's just, I've just decided since I got saved that God wants me to be miserable until I go home to glory. No. These qualities are talking about what it's like now. Things and mindsets that some of the, the benefits and blessings will be fully realized at the end of our lives, but the tense of this word means we're blessed right now. Because these qualities are true of us and will be fully realized ultimately in our lives down the road. The presence of these traits naturally results in blessing. And so I hope that as we go through this series, that each of us will see how God, loving God, 
who knows how to give his children good gifts, really wants each of us as believers and as his children to know what it means to be truly blessed. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, not just into eternity when we enter heaven's gates, but Lord, for the confident expectation of tomorrow, that there is a peace that passes understanding the here and now. There's victory in Jesus today. That Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly right now. And that you want us to experience blessedness in our present circumstances. And so, Lord, I pray that as we examine your word, and we take to heart what these qualities represent, Lord, that we would have a desire that says, yes, Lord, work these traits to be more fully represented in my life. Take away those hindrances that are impeding and keeping these qualities from being seen in my life, from me enjoying them in my life. May I understand that it's not just about walking an aisle, praying a prayer, going through the rest of my life, reading my Bible faithfully, praying uh, through a list. Lord, there's an intense personal relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, that you want us to fully recognize and to grasp and to benefit from, and that you want us to know what it means to be blessed. Work in our hearts, awaken in us, as we might be in the dark about some of these things, as only your Spirit can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like us to take just a moment and allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. Maybe you're here today and you say, wow, what you were saying today from the Word of God, what I'm seeing there as you read through that list, that is so different than what is true of my life. But as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, that's the kind of blessedness I want. I've, I've tried the world, I've tried different things, and there's little peaks and perks here and there, but ultimately it just comes back to being so unsatisfying. So, so disillusioned about what the world has to offer. And I'm not suggesting, hey, why don't you try Jesus? It doesn't work that way. I'm saying is Jesus is the answer. Come to Him. Come to Him as He wants you to come to Him. Don't just do it in a superficial way. Dear friend, receive Christ as your Savior. Receive Him as the person into your life. And guess what? He forgives you of your sin. He gives you a home of heaven. He frees you from the bondage to your sin. He gives you victory over discouragement. There's nothing like being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you one? You can be today if you call upon Him and believe. Say, I don't know how to do that. We'd love to help you. If you're here in the room during the next few moments as Becky's playing, slip out of your seat. Come to where I'm standing at the front. I'll be glad to partner you with someone that will share you lovingly how you can receive Christ today, guide you in that step. 
Maybe you're a Christian, you say, I know, know the Lord, but, you know, I, I'm not experiencing the blessedness. There's just such a superficialness in my life. And as I'm looking at this, I'm saying, I'm not sure how many of these qualities really describe my life. No wonder I don't sense a blessedness in my life. Maybe the prayer today, before we begin looking at everything that is listed there very specifically, you say, Lord, I don't know what it will take. I don't know what you'll ask of me, but I want to be surrendered. I want to be open-handed because I know that I want that blessedness. I know I need to want that blessedness. I know that's the direction I need, but I'm going to need your grace. I'm going to need your help. And be in that state of surrender to before the Lord, preparing our hearts with an appetite saying, God, direct me, and may I know that in my life personally. God loves to hear that from the hearts of his children. So let's take the next few moments as Becky plays before Jim comes and leads us, and let's respond to however the Spirit of God leads us today.